Chapter Twenty of the Pit Prop Syndicate by Freeman Wills Crofts. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty: The Double Cross. Inspector Willis spent the Saturday before the fateful Tuesday at the telephone in the empty cottage. Nothing of interest passed over the wire except that Benson informed his chief that he had had a telegram from Beamish saying that, in order to reach Ferriby at the prearranged hour he was having to sail without a full cargo of props and that the two men went over again the various trains by which they and their confederates would travel to london both items pleased willis as it showed him that the plans originally made were being adhered to on monday morning as the critical hour of his coup approached he became restless and even nervous so far that is as an inspector of the yard on duty can be nervous so much depended on the results of the next day and a half his own fate hung in the balance as well as that of the men against whom he had pitted himself miss coburn and merriman too would be profoundly affected however the affair ended while to his department and even to the nation at large his success would not be without importance he determined he would if possible see the various members of the gang start traveling himself in the train with archer as the leader and the man most urgently wanted benson he remembered was to go first Willis therefore haunted the Paragon station, watching the trains leave, and he was well satisfied when he saw Benson get on board the 9.10 a.m. By means of a word of explanation and the passing of a couple of shillings, he induced an official to examine the traveler's ticket, which proved to be a third return to King's Cross. Beamish and Bulla were to travel by the 4 p.m., and Willis, carefully disguised as a deep-sea fisherman, watched them arrive separately, take their tickets, and enter the train. Beamish travelled first and Bulla third, and again the inspector had their tickets examined and found they were for London. Archer was to leave at five thirty, and Willis intended as a precautionary measure to travel up with him and keep him under observation. Still in his fisherman's disguise, he took his own ticket, got into the rear of the train, and kept his eye on the platform until he saw Archer pass, suitcase and rug in hand. Then cautiously looking out, he watched the other get into a through coach for King's Cross. As the train ran past the depot at Ferriby, Willis observed that the Girondin was not discharging pit props, but instead was loading casks of some kind. He had noticed on the previous Friday, when he had been in the neighborhood, that some wagons of those casks had been shunted inside the enclosure and were being unloaded by the syndicate's men. The casks looked like those in which the crude oil for the ship's diesel engines arrived, and the fact that she was loading them unemptied, he presumed them unemptied seemed to indicate that the pumping plant on the wharf was out of order. The 5.30 p.m. ran with a stop at Goole to Doncaster, where the through carriage was shunted on to one of the great expresses from the north. More from force of habit than otherwise, Willis put his head out of the window at Goole to watch if anyone should leave Archer's carriage, but no one did. At Doncaster, Willis received something of a shock. As his train drew into the station, another was just coming out, and he idly ran his eyes along the line of coaches. A figure in the corner of a third-class compartment attracted his attention. It seemed vaguely familiar, but it was already out of sight before the inspector realized that it was a likeness to Benson that had struck him. He had not seen the man's face, and at once dismissed the matter from his mind with the careless thought that everyone has his double. A moment later they pulled up at the platform. Here again he put out his head, and it was not long before he saw Archer alight, and, evidently leaving his suitcase and rug to keep his seat, move slowly down the platform. 
there was nothing remarkable in this as no less than seventeen minutes elapsed between the arrival of the train from hull and the departure of that from london and through passengers frequently left their carriage while it was being shunted at the same time willis unostentatiously followed and presently saw archer vanish into the first-class refreshment room he took up a position where he had a good view of the door and waited for the other's reappearance but the distiller was in no hurry ten minutes elapsed and still he made no sign the express from the north thundered in the engine hooked off and shunting began the train was due out at six twenty two and now the hands of the great clock pointed to six nineteen willis began to be perturbed had he missed his quarry at six twenty he could stand it no longer and at risk of meeting archer should the latter at that moment decide to leave the refreshment room he pushed open the door and glanced in and then he breathed freely again archer was sitting at a table sipping what looked like a whiskey and soda as willis looked he saw him glance up at the clock now pointing to six twenty one and calmly settle himself more comfortably in his chair why the man would miss the train willis with a sudden feeling of disappointment had an impulse to run over and remind him of the hour at which it left but he controlled himself in time slipped back to his post of observation and took up his watch in a few seconds the train whistled and pulled majestically out of the station for fifteen minutes willis waited and then he saw the distiller leave the refreshment room and walk slowly down the platform as willis followed it was clear to him that the other had deliberately allowed his train to start without him though what his motive had been the inspector could not imagine he now approached the booking office and apparently bought a ticket afterwards turning back down the platform willis slipped into a doorway until he had passed then hurrying to the booking window explained who he was and asked to what station the last comer had booked he was told selby and he retreated exasperated and puzzled beyond words what could archer be up to he bought a timetable and began to study the possibilities first he made himself clear as to the lie of the land the main line of the great east coast route from london to scotland ran almost due north and south through doncaster eighteen miles to the north was selby the next important station at selby a line running east and west crossed the other leading in one direction to leeds and the west in the other to hull about halfway between selby and hull at a place called staddlethorpe a line branched off and ran southwesterly through Goole to Doncaster. Selby, Saddlethorpe, and Doncaster therefore formed a railway triangle, one of the sides of which produced led to Hull. From this it followed, as indeed the inspector had known, that passengers to and from Hull had two points of connection with the main line, either direct to Selby or through Goole to Doncaster. He began to study the trains the first northwards was the four p m dining car express from king's cross to newcastle it left doncaster at seven fifty six and reached selby at eight twenty one would archer travel by it and if he did what would be his next move for nearly an hour willis sat huddled up in the corner of a seat his eye on archer in the distance and his mind wrestling with the problem for nearly an hour he racked his brains without result then suddenly a devastating idea flashed before his consciousness leaving him rigid with dismay. For a moment his mind refused to accept so disastrous a possibility, but as he continued to think over it, he found that one puzzling and unrelated fact after another took on a different complexion from that it had formerly borne, that, moreover, it dropped into place and became part of a connected whole. He saw now why Archer could not discuss Madeline's letter over the telephone, but was able to arrange in that way for the interview with Beamish he understood why archer standing at his study window had mentioned the call at eleven next morning 
he realized that benson's amendment was probably arranged by archer on the previous evening he saw why the girondin had left the lesque without her full cargo and why she was loading barrels at ferriby he knew who it was he had seen passing in the other train as his own reached doncaster and he grasped for the reason for archer's visit to selby in a word he saw he had been hoaxed fooled carefully systematically and at every point while he had been congratulating himself on the completeness with which the conspirators had been walking into his net he had in reality been caught in theirs he had been like a child in their hands they had evidently been watching and countering his every step he saw now that his tapping of the secret telephone must have been discovered and that his enemies had used their discovery to mislead him they must have recognized that madeline's letter was inspired by himself and read his motives in making her send it they had then used the telephone to make him believe they were falling into his trap while their real plans were settled in archer's study what those plans were he believed he now understood there would be no meetings in london on the following day the meetings were designed to bring him willis to the metropolis and keep him there by tomorrow the gang convinced that discovery was imminent would be aboard the girondin and on the high seas they were as he expressed it to himself doing a bunk therefore of necessity the girondin would load barreled oil to drive her to some country where scotland yard detectives did not flourish and where extradition laws were of no account therefore she must return light or he suspected empty as there would be no time to unload moreover a reason for this lightness must be given him lest he should notice the ship sitting high out of the water and suspect and he now knew that it was really benson that he had seen returning to ferriby via ghoul and that archer was doing the same via selby he looked up the trains from selby to ferriby there was only one it left selby at nine nineteen fifty-eight minutes after the doncaster train arrived there and reached ferriby at ten o seven it was now getting on towards eight he had nearly two and a half hours to make his plans though willis was a little slow in thought he was prompt in action feeling sure that archer would indeed travel by the seven fifty six to selby he relaxed his watch and went to the telephone call office there he rang up the police station at selby asking for a plainclothesman and two constables to meet him at the train to make an arrest also he asked for a fast car to be engaged to take him immediately to ferriby he then called up the police in hall and had a long talk with the superintendent finally it was arranged that a sergeant and twelve men were to meet him on the shore at the back of the signal cabin near the ferriby depot with a boat and a grappling ladder for getting aboard the girondin this done willis hurried back to the platform reaching it just as the seven fifty six came in he watched archer get on board and then himself entered another compartment at selby the quarry alighted and passed along the platform toward the booking office willis's police training instantly revealed him to the plainclothes man and him he instructed to follow archer and learn to what station he booked in a few moments the man returned to say it was ferriby then calling up the two constables the four officers followed the distiller into the first-class waiting room where he had taken cover willis walked up to him archibald charles archer he said impressively i am inspector willis of scotland yard i have a warrant for your arrest on a charge of murdering francis coburn in a cab in london on september twelfth last i have to warn you that anything you say may be used in evidence for a moment the distiller seemed so overwhelmed with surprise as to be incapable of movement and before he could pull himself together there was a click and handcuffs gleamed on his wrists 
then his eyes blazed and with the inarticulate roar of a wild beast he flung himself wildly on willis and manacled as he was attempted to seize his throat but the struggle was brief in a moment the other three men had torn him off and he stood glaring at his adversary and uttering savage curses you look after him sergeant willis directed a little breathlessly as he tried to straighten the remnants of his tie i must go on to ferriby a powerful car was waiting outside the station and willis jumping in offered the driver an extra pound if he was at ferriby within fifty minutes he reckoned the distance was about twenty-five miles and he thought he should maintain at average of thirty miles an hour the night was intensely dark as the big vehicle swung out of selby eastward bound a slight wind blew in from the east bearing a damp searching cold more trying than frost willis who had left his coat in the london train shivered as he drew the one rug the vehicle contained up round his shoulders the road to howden was broad and smooth and the car made fine going but at howden the main road turned north and speed on the comparatively inferior crossroads to ferriby had to be reduced but willis was not dissatisfied with their progress when at nine thirty eight fifty-four minutes after leaving selby they pulled up in the ferriby lane not far from the distillery and opposite the railway signal cabin having arranged with the driver to run up to the main road wait there until he heard four blasts on the girondin's horn and then make for the syndicate's depot the inspector dismounted and forcing his way through the railway fence crossed the rails and descended the low embankment on the river side a moment later just as he reached the shore the form of a man loomed up dimly through the darkness who is there asked willis softly constable jones sir the figured answered is that inspector willis sergeant hobbs is here with the boats willis followed the other for fifty yards along the beach until they came on two boats each containing half a dozen policemen it was still very dark and the wind blew cold and raw the silence was broken only by the lapping of the waves on the shingle willis felt the night was ideal for his purpose there was enough noise from wind and water to muffle any sounds that the men might make in getting aboard the girondin but not enough to prevent him overhearing any conversation which might be in progress we have just got here this minute sir the sergeant said i hope we haven't kept you waiting just arrived myself willis returned you have twelve picked men yes sir armed yes sir good i need not remind you all not to fire except as a last resort what arrangements have you made for boarding we have a ladder with hooks at the top for catching on the taffrail your oars muffled yes sir very well now listen and see that you are clear about what you are to do when we reach the ship get your ladder into position and i'll go up you and the men follow keep beside me sergeant we'll overhear what we can when i give the signal rush in and arrest the whole gang do you follow yes sir then let us get under way they pushed off passing like phantoms over the dark water the ship carried a riding light to which they steered she was lying willis knew bow upstream the tide was flowing and when they were close by they ceased rowing and drifted down on to her stern there the leading boat dropped in beneath her counter and the bowman made a painter fast to her rudder post the second boat's painter was attached to the stern of the first and the current swung both alongside the men fending off allowed their craft to come into place without a sound the ladder was raised and hooked on and willis climbing up stealthily raised his head above the taffrail the port side of the ship was as on previous occasions in complete darkness and willis jerked the ladder as a signal to the others to follow him in a few seconds the fourteen men stood like shadows on the lower deck 
then willis tiptoeing forward began to climb the ladder to the bridge deck just as hilliard had done some four months earlier as on that occasion the starboard side of the ship next to the wharf was dimly lighted up a light also showed in the window of the captain's cabin from which issued the sound of voices willis posted his men in two groups at either end of the cabin so that at a given signal they could rush round in opposite directions and reach the door then he and the sergeant crept forward and put their ears to the window this time though the glass was hooked back as before the curtain was pulled fully across the opening so that the men could see nothing and only partially hear what was said willis therefore reached in and very gradually pulled it a little aside fortunately no one noticed the movement and the talk continued uninterruptedly the inspector could now see in five men were squeezed round the tiny table beamish and bulla sat along one side directly facing him at the end was fox the remaining two had their backs to the window and were the inspector believed raymond and henri before each man was a long tumbler of whiskey and soda and a box of cigars lay on the table all seemed nervous and excited indeed as if under an intolerable strain and kept fidgeting and looking at their watches conversation was evidently maintained with an effort as a thing necessary to keep them from a complete breakdown raymond was speaking and you saw him come out he was asking yes fox answered he came out sort of stealthy and looked around i didn't know who it was then but i knew no one had any business in the cottage at that hour so i followed him to ferriby station i saw his face by the lamps there and you knew him no but i recognized him as having been around with that excise inspector and i guessed he was on to something we oui, we oui, yes the frenchman interrogated well naturally i told the chief he knew who it was bien there is not how do you say flies on archer n'est-ce pas and then the chief guessed who it was from the captain's description fox nodded his head at beamish you met him eh captain he stood me a drink the big man answered but what he did it for i don't know but how did he get wise to the telephone bulla rumbled can't find out fox replied but it showed he was wise to the whole affair then there was that letter from miss coburn that gave the show away because there could have been no papers like she said and she couldn't have discovered anything then that she hadn't known at the clearing archer put morton on to it and he found that this willis went down to eastburn one night about two days before the letter came so that was that then he had me watch for him going to the telephone and he has fooled him about proper i guess he's in london now arranging to rest us all tomorrow bulla chuckled fatly as you say he nodded at raymond there ain't no flies on archer what i've always thought a lot of archer beamish remarked but i never thought so much of him as that night we drew lots for who should put coburn out of the way when he drew the long taper he never as much as turned a hair that's the last time we had a full meeting and we never reckoned that this would be the next at this moment a train passed going towards hull there's his train fox cried he should be here soon how long does it take to get from the station raymond inquired about fifteen minutes captain beamish answered we're time enough making a move the men showed more and more nervousness but the talk dragged on for some quarter of an hour suddenly from the wharf sounded the approaching footsteps of a running man he crossed the gangway and raced up the ladder to the captain's cabin the others sprang to their feet as the door opened and benson appeared he hasn't come he cried excitedly i watched at the station and he didn't get out consternation showed on every face and beamish swore bitterly
there was a variety of comments and conjectures there's no other train only the express it doesn't stop here but it stops at hassle on notice to the guard he may have missed the connection at selby fox suggested in that case he would motor beamish spoke authoritatively i wish benson you would go and ring up the central and see if there has been any message willis whispered to the sergeant who beckoning to two of his men crept hurriedly down the port ladder to the lower deck in a moment benson followed down the starboard or lighted side willis listened breathlessly above heard what he was expecting a sudden scuffle a muffled cry a faint click and then silence he peeped through the porthole fox was expounding his theory about the railway connections and none of those within had heard the sounds presently the sergeant returned with his men trust him up to the david pole he breathed in the inspector's ear he won't give no trouble willis nodded contentedly that was one out of the way of six and he had fourteen on his side meanwhile the men in the cabin continued anxiously discussing their leader's absence until after a few minutes beamish swore irritably curse that fool benson he growled what the blazes is keeping him all this time i had better go and hurry him up if they've got hold of archer it's time we were out of this Willis's hand closed on the sergeant's arm. Same thing again, but with three men, he whispered. The four had hardly disappeared down the port ladder when Beamish left his cabin and began to descend the starboard. Willis felt that the crisis was upon him. He whispered to the remaining constables, who closed in round the cabin door, and then grasped his revolver and stood tense. Suddenly a wild commotion arose on the lower deck. There was a warning shout from Beamish, instantly muffled, a tramp of feet, a pistol shot and the sounds of a violent struggle for a moment there was silence in the cabin the men gazing at each other with consternation on their faces then bulla yelled copped by heck and with an agility hardly credible in a man of his years whipped out a revolver and sprang out of the cabin instantly he was seized by three constables and the four went swinging and lurching across the deck bulla fighting desperately to turn his weapon on his assailants at the same moment, Willis leaped to the door and, with his automatic leveled, shouted, Hands up, all of you. You are covered from every quarter. Henri and Fox, who were next to the door, obeyed as if in a stupor. But Raymond's hand flew out, and a bullet whistled past the inspector's head. Instantly, Willis fired, and with a scream, the Frenchman staggered back. It was the work of a few seconds for the remaining constables to dash in under the inspector's pistol and handcuff the two men in the cabin and willis then turned to see how the contests on the deck were faring but these also were over both beamish and bulla borne down by the weight of numbers had been secured the inspector next turned to examine raymond his shot had been well aimed the bullet had entered by the base of the man's right thumb and passed out through his wrist his life was not in danger but it would be many a long day before he would again fire a revolver four blasts on the girondine's horn recalled willis's car and when some three hours later the last batch of prisoners was safely lodged in the hull police station willis began to feel that the end of his labors was at last coming in sight the arrest supplied the inspector with fresh material on which to work as a result of his careful investigation of the movements of the prisoners during the previous three years the entire history of the pit prop syndicate was unraveled as well as the details of coburn's murder it seemed that the original idea of the fraud was raymond's he looked round for a likely english partner selected archer broached the subject to him and found him willing to go in soon from his dominating personality archer became the leader 
details were worked out and the necessary confederates carefully chosen beamish and bulla went in as partners the four being bound together by their joint liability the other three members were tools over whom the quartet had obtained some hold in coburn's case archer learned of the defalcations in time to make the erring cashier his victim he met the deficit in return for a signed confession of guilt and an iou for a sum that would have enabled the distiller to sell the other up and ruin his home and his future an incompletely erased address in a pocket diary belonging to beamish led willis to a small shop on the south side of london where he discovered an assistant who had sold a square of black serge to two men about the time of coburn's murder the salesman remembered the transaction because his customers had been unable to describe what they wanted otherwise than by the word cloth which was not the technical name for any of his commodities the fabric found in the cab was identical to that on the roll this man stated he had used moreover he identified beamish and bulla as the purchasers willis had a routine search made of the restaurants of soho and at last found that in which the conspirators had held their meetings previous to the murder there had been two at the first so willis learned from the description given by the proprietor coburn had been present but not at the second in spite of all of his efforts he was unable to find the shop at which the pistol had been bought but he suspected the transaction had been carried out by one of the other members of the gang in order as far as possible to share the responsibility for the crime on the girondin was found the false bulkhead in bulla's cabin behind which was placed the hidden brandy tank the connection for the shore pipe was concealed behind the back of the engineer's hand wash basin which moved forward by means of a secret spring on the girondin was also found something over seven hundred thousand pounds mostly in brazilian notes and benson admitted later that the plan had been to scuttle the girondin off the coast of bahia take to the boats and row ashore at night remaining in brazil at least till the hue and cry had died down but instead all seven men received heavy sentences archer paid for his crimes with his life the others got terms of from ten to fifteen years each the managers of the licensed houses in hull were believed to have been in ignorance of the larger fraud and to have dealt privately and individually with archer and they and their accomplices escaped with lighter penalties the mysterious morton proved to be a private detective employed by archer he swore positively that he had no knowledge of the real nature of the syndicate's operations and though the judge's strictures on his conduct were severe no evidence could be found against him and he was not brought to trial Inspector Willis got his desired promotion out of the case, and there was someone else who got more. About a month after the trial, in the Holy Trinity Church Eastbourne, a wedding was solemnized. Seymour Merriman and Madeline Coburn were united in the holy bonds of matrimony, and Hilliard, assisting as best man, could not refrain from whispering in his friend's ear as they turned to leave the vestry, three cheers for the pit prop syndicate. End of chapter 20 End of the Pit Prop Syndicate by Freeman Wills Crofts